Welcome to episode 41, Dialectical Behavior Therapy Skills Overview by Patricia Gieselman, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Welcome. Patricia Gieselman here. Uh, I'm a marriage and family therapist in the state of California. And um, the work I do is with dialectical behavior therapy that we call DBT. Uh, today, I'm going to give you just a little brief overview of kind of DBT therapy and the conference components. And then we're going to do an overview of the DBT skills component um, of the DBT treatment. Now, DBT skills are starting to be used for a lot of different um, things, and we can talk a little bit about that as we go. So why would you practice dialectical behavior therapy? What would you be looking to treat? Well, DBT treats emotion dysregulation, and all of the problem behaviors well, not all of the problem behaviors, a lot of the problem behaviors that stem from the inability to control emotions. Um, DBT is, is really effective for people who have emotions or behaviors that interfere with important goals that they have or those folks who simply have difficulty managing their emotions and behaviors. Now, DBT will also help replace those behaviors that create problems with more skillful or more adaptive behaviors that help us get to the goals we want in life. Uh, DBT helps create a life worth living, a life that has both positive and negative experiences that hold many different feelings. We want to be able to experience all emotions, to be able to tolerate difficult emotions, to be able to manage through those times that life can get difficult. Um, in a previous podcast, I quoted um, my colleague and uh, mentor Kelly Kerner uh, from her book that she wrote in 2012 about regulating emotion. She says, difficulty regulating emotion means difficulty regulating most areas of one's life. Most of what we do and who we are depends on mood stability and adequate emotion regulation. And then she goes on to say the same action may feel easy or hard depending on our mood. Um, in a comprehensive DBT treatment program, you have some required components. You're required to do individual therapy one time a week with the client, um, a DBT therapy. You're required to do either DBT skills groups with that same client one time a week or do a separate session that's individual skills training. You're required to do telephone coaching as needed between sessions to coach these skills as people are learning to use new behaviors that are more adaptive. And you need to be on a DBT consultation team weekly if you're a DBT therapist doing DBT. So those are the things that are required as components of comprehensive DBT. Uh, these things have been adapted for MELU in residential treatment programs, inpatient programs, forensic programs, um, families and couples, multifamily groups, which is what we use for any adolescent uh, clients that come into our program. We offer them multifamily groups, which means the kids and their caregiver come together to the same skills group and the caregiver has homework to do and a workbook that they work through and the kid has homework to do and, and work that they do with their homework. So it's the whole idea is to learn along with your adolescent or your uh, latency ch uh, age child the skills so that you can not only model them, but you can coach your child and they can coach you because we are transactional human beings for sure. We change each other and we impact each other. The research, just briefly on comprehensive DBT, uh, it reduces suicidal behaviors, non-suicidal self-injurious behaviors. It reduces depression, hopelessness, anger, eating disorders, substance abuse, 
and also increases general and social adjustment. Uh, tends to increase the positive self-image and overall life functioning tends to go up with the the implementation of DBT skills that can generalize their real world so they can actually take them and use them. Uh, there's been some good research so far about DBT skills only um, in terms of uh, an adaptation to DBT. Depending on the symptomology, it is never recommended that you would uh, do a non-comprehensive program for a person with severe uh, multiple symptoms. Um, that would have to be a rule out before you would just do skills with them. But the research that's, that's been going on suggests that just the DBT skills, if you can get that under people's belts, uh, improve depression, hopelessness, general distress in victims of domestic violence, uh, depression, hopelessness, anger, number of hours worked in vocational re rehabilitation clients, decreases perceived burden and uh, well-being in family members of people with big emotions, uh, reduces aggression, impulsivity, and psychopathology in difficult-to-manage correctional populations. And when compared to treatment as usual or a waitlist condition, DBT skills only can significantly increase abstinence from binging and purging in females with eating disorders. Uh, this research is all uh, published and available. Um, and uh, Ness used uh, a research on uh, decreased depression in treatment-resistant resistant depressed individuals uh, also. So that just kind of gives you some ideas of what how, how widespread DBT is now being used. So we're going to narrow down and just talk about an overview of the skills training modules themselves. Now, in the new um, edition of uh, Dr. Linehan's DBT skills training and uh, handout worksheet, it's called DBT skills training handouts and worksheets, second edition. Uh, we've got a lot more uh, available worksheets and training guidelines uh, than in the original 1993 um, skills manual. So I encourage you to make sure that you're working with the uh, second edition. Uh, there's two manuals. There's the one I just mentioned with the worksheets and handouts, and that's what is, is given to the clients. Each client has their own workbook that they use to work through. And then there's the DBT skills training manual, a second edition that goes along with that, that teaches, that gives you the teaching lessons, examples, uh, what to uh, teach in, in each of the classes. So the DBT modules, you've got mindfulness on, it, there, there's everything in DBT is, is based on a kind of a dialectical continuum. So the primary dialectic in DBT is acceptance on one end and change on the other. So there are four skills modules plus uh, the uh, middle path that's in the adolescent manual. And uh, the two skills that are on the acceptance side are mindfulness, which is how to be present and more effective in this particular moment I'm in right now, and distress tolerance module, which is how to be in an intolerable situation without making it worse, and be able to accept situations that can't be changed. So there's a couple of sections to that that we'll talk about. Um, the uh, change skills on the other end of the dialectic include emotion regulation, which is how to identify and manage emotions, and then the fourth module is interpersonal effectiveness, how to ask for what you want, how to say no effectively, while doing a better job at meeting your objectives, getting what you want, or saying no effectively, maintaining the relationship that you're in that interpersonal uh, situation with, and also maintaining or repairing your own self-respect. Uh, the middle path skills are multifamily skills, uh, uh, Alec Miller and Jill Rathis developed that with Dr. Linehan, and there's a, uh, a manual that was published in 2006 there that um, talks about that middle path working with families. It's really helpful stuff. So there's your, your skills modules. 
um, if I if I look at it, it takes 24 sessions roughly to get through all of those skills in the um, training manual, DBT skills training manual. Uh, you can find a, a list of curriculum guidelines that shows what, what you teach which weeks. There's a variety of those that have been uh, researched and looked at. Um, the standard uh, Linehan model that she did her research with is a 24 lesson where it's a two and a half hour group, one time a week. Um, groups in private practice or different environments tend to run anywhere from an hour and a half to two and a half hours. The cycle takes approximately six months to get through one round of all the skills. And many participants are contracted or are willing to contract or recontract for an additional six months or longer in order to get those skills more generalized into their real life experience. Folks that we have treated who have multiple suicide attempts, a lot of self-harm, heavy addictions, um, big anger problems that interfere with their life. Oftentimes, we will originally contract with them for a year, knowing that the research really supports them having that year-long cycle um, to get those skills embedded. Um, generally, the skills modules are taught module by module. Um, in our program, we teach each module separately. So we'll teach mindfulness for two weeks, and then we'll move to another module, which can be anywhere between six and eight weeks, like distress tolerance. We'll then go back to two weeks of mindfulness, go to the, the next module, interpersonal effectiveness, for six weeks or so, go back to mindfulness for two weeks, and then move to emotion regulation, which is six or eight weeks, depending on how it's set up. So it goes through the whole process, and there's homework assigned. So it's, it's like maybe a, a, a college class, a junior college class, an, an entry-level college class. So it's set up at tables. We've got whiteboards around the room. It's not a process group. It's a skills class. So the goals are to learn how to change your own behavior your emotions and thoughts that are linked to problems in living and are causing, causing misery and distress. In those skills classes, and this is really, really important, there's no discussion of the specific target behaviors that people are working on. And this is in order to prevent that contagion effect that we know about. Uh, suicide, self-harm, substance use, uh, other types of behaviors can be uh, contagious and somebody's talking about it a lot in group and other people pick up and and uh, copycat those behaviors. We've seen it over and over and over again. So one of the things we don't do is uh, identify our target behaviors. So if I'm do doing my homework and reporting on using a mindfulness skill during the week, I'll say I had a really rough time with my target behavior and I had big urges and I used mindfulness to be able to uh, stay focused on what was in front of me in the moment rather than use my target behavior. There would be no talk about the story of cutting or burning or suicide uh, communication or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> with the groups themselves, we run our groups anywhere between eh, six, and, six and ten members. They're kind of a good size for us. Sometimes they're up to twelve. We don't like to go too much bigger than that because at that point, um, there really isn't time for everybody <clears throat> to go over their homework. So uh, the people that are in a group, say we have three adult groups we're running at the moment. We have two evening groups that run from 7 to 9 and one morning weekday group that runs from 10 to 12. And what we ask them to is not to have outside private relationships with other group members. So we wouldn't put best friends in the same group. We'd put them in separate groups. Now, we want them to develop relationships, but relationships that would, um, like if two of them went for coffee and had a visit with each other, that they wouldn't discuss anything that maybe another group member had said. So we want, we want the group to be a really safe place. 
I want to reemphasize again that this is not a process group. It is a skills class group. It has a, a structure. So we're teaching lessons, like we're teaching a math lesson. We might discuss the homework in an algebra or a mathematics class, but we're not going to process how difficult it was to do the homework assignment and how bad I felt when my mother came in when I was doing my homework. So it's, we really keep it to a skills class. The function of the skills training is to get the skills in and then you process them in the DBT individual therapy. Um, let's see. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the class agenda. Uh, one of the five functions of DBT that must be there to be a, a comprehensive um, DBT program is that you, one of the five functions is to help them structure the environment. So the class agendas are pretty um, structured. We do our very best to start and stop on time. The first thing that happens is there's a mindfulness exercise. Actually, in our program, we orient everybody that class starts at 10 or class starts at 7 in the evening. And at that point, we orient people very kindly that when that 7 o'clock comes, we're going to uh, close the door and put the mindfulness sign out on the door that we're practicing mindfulness. And we ask them to quietly wait outside the room until we reopen the door and take the mindfulness sign off the door. That's for a couple of reasons. That's doing some shaping behavior. It's, it's contingency management of teaching people to show up on time. It also does something else. It allows people to respect the mindfulness exercise so their people aren't coming in and out while that exercise is going on because we don't want people doing one thing at a time, which is one of the mindfulness skills. So we do a mindfulness exercise. There are different kinds we do. We do observe exercises of describe participation, non-judgmental exercises, so that they get to taste different types of mindfulness exercises so they can kind of pick and choose the ones that they're comfortable using or maybe work with their individual therapist to do some of the ones that don't come naturally. So they're using the ones that are comfortable and they're also expanding their repertoire to learn more mindfulness exercises. So when we do that exercise, we uh, give an explanation for what it's teaching. We give clear instructions. We either ring a bell or say start and stop to have it start and then end. Uh, we indicate you know, for people how to sit. In DBT, we tend to do uh, mindfulness with our eyes wide open, mindfulness meditation with our eyes open. Uh, Dr. Linehan has, has told us that it's, we do mindfulness with our eyes wide open because we have to live life with their eyes wide open, with all the distractions, all the things that come and go, all the thoughts that enter, all the tension, all the everything. So practicing with our eyes wide open really gives us a chance to be mindful within perhaps a distracting, a, a distracting uh, situation. So as soon as that's done, we do, there's two parts to the mindfulness exercise we do. The first is to do the exercise. And the second part is to describe what we observed in that experience non-judgmentally. So we're teaching the, the, the parts of the what and the how skills every time we do a mindfulness exercise, um, which are mindfulness skills. So for example, if we were uh, noticing our breath coming in and out of our nostrils, and that would be the mindfulness exercise. So just focus on your breath as it comes in and out of your nostrils. So we'd have them do that. And then the second part is to Describe non-judgmentally what they experienced. So a person might say, um, I felt the coolness of my breath as it came into my nose from outside. I noticed my chest rise and fall as I breathed. I noticed I was thinking about the grocery list I need to do later, and I just noticed that and then gently brought myself back to my my breathing. So we'd go around and have people do those two parts of that exercise. Then there'd be homework review from the previous class. Uh, this homework review is really important because you want to not only to know they're doing their homework, which means practicing the skills we taught them last week out in the real world, but you also want to be able to provide corrective feedback if it's needed so that if they're not getting the skill um, effectively, then we can reinforce, we can, we can offer corrective feedback, 
we can encourage, we can give examples um, that, that will allow them to better use the, the homework. Then there's the introduction of a new lesson that's on the, the next agenda. We have a, um, a table of contents and a calendar that we give everybody when they come into group. So they know what the lesson will be. They know what pages it's going to be on in the, in the handouts and worksheet manual. They know what the homework will be. So if they're missing or uh, I'm absent or forget, then they've got access to that throughout the week. So we introduce a new lesson. Then we do practice and application of that new material in, in the class. And then homework is assigned and commitments are requested to do the homework for the next week. So that's kind of your standard DBT class that we do. It's very similar in a multifamily group. Everybody, you know, they practice their homework or they, they, they share their homework, they get a new lesson, they, we practice, and then we assign homework. And we do our very best to start and stop on time. So DBT skills assumptions, and these are also in these manuals for you to, to learn from. The assumptions that we not only ask um, therapists to uh, accept, but that we ask the group members to accept. Now, first of all, that people are doing the very best they can in this moment. The second is that people want to improve. Now, you'll get somebody in the class will say, oh, I, you know, I haven't, you haven't met my, my boyfriend. You haven't met my wife. They don't want to improve. And I go, well, everybody wants more of what they want in their life, less distress in their life. So I think it's, it's okay to assume that people want to improve their quality of life, even if they're having trouble improving their behaviors. Number three is, here we go back to that dialectic again. We just said people are doing the best they can. And number three is people need to do better, try harder, and be more motivated to change. So there's that jumping back and forth across that dialectic. Number four, people may not have caused all their own problems, but they need to solve them anyway if they want to have a different quality of life, if they want to meet their goals. Um, this is a tough one for a lot of people. I'm not sure I'm real fond of it myself. You know, I don't like the idea of having to clean up something that somebody, something or something else caused, but that is reality. That's part of reality acceptance that I'm the one that wants my life to be different and I'm the one that needs to solve them if it's going to be different. The fifth one is new behaviors have to be learned in all relevant contexts. So that's why we do the homework. That's why there's homework from individual therapy to go home and practice what we learned this week, what we practiced in individual, what we practiced in skills group, to be able to do that at school, at work, at home, with, with relationships that are, are easy and with relationships that are difficult, um, under pressure, in traffic, it's a great place to practice. Um, not that anybody in this podcast listening piece ever gets irritated in, in traffic, but I certainly do from time to time. Number six is all behaviors are caused. That is a premise in DBT. It's a non-shame, non-blame-based uh, system that says, just like physics is physics, all behaviors are caused. Something in my learning, something in my uh, physical uh, bio, uh, biology, something in my environment, something I've learned has caused this behavior to happen. And I need, I need to find out what the causes are and so that I can do a different behavior if I want. Now, the last one is figuring out and changing the causes of behavior work better than judging and blaming. Now they may not be as fulfilling is judging and blaming for some human beings or some of us human beings. But it's like, you know, if I can figure out the cause and I can change the cause, and that's what in DBT we use a behavior chain and a solution chain analysis for, is to analyze an event that happened where I may have used my target behavior. And let's look what happened before and after that the, the, the event. Well, let me put it this way. The event that within that situation, a person used their target behavior, whether it was cutting, burning, biting, kicking, fighting, yelling, screaming, hiding, avoiding, whatever their problem behavior that they're working on in. So we use a behavior chain analysis and solution chain analysis to look at what reinforced that behavior 
and what came before it. Right before you did your target behavior, what was going on? Who was there? Uh, what were you thinking? What was going on in your body? What was going on in, in your uh, emotions? What emotion was there? How big was it? What was the prompting event that set you on your path to that uh, using your target behavior? And even in front of that, what vulnerabilities did you have that made you more vulnerable to um, uh, that prompting event that then set you on your path? So this is another piece of DBT. Actually, in the new uh, uh, second edition, in the general handout to the front, it, has, it gives a really nice description about how to uh, look at a behavior chain analysis and analyze behavior. It's got some good material there, also a missing links analysis, if you're interested in looking at that. So those are the assumptions that we ask people to be willing to um, take on in DBT skills, as both DBT skills therapists, trainers, and patients or clients, whatever you call them. Oh, the other thing about skills group, we always have two skills leaders. Um, we have a leader and a co-leader. And that's important for a lot of reasons. Uh, primary, it's safety, so that there are, uh, there are enough uh, skills trainers in the room that if somebody has a rough time and needs to leave, that the, the lesson can go on for the, the rest of the clients and there's, we, we can ensure safety. So that's an important facet of being um, kind of DBT. Um, it's like we're, we're going to be working on getting our program certified. I got my DBT Linehan um, certified clinician um standing this last year and then we will proceed and get our program certified and that will have some requirements in it one of them is you have two skills leaders to ensure safety and, and also that somebody's able to teach while the other person is uh, observing people in the the room and tending to what is needed so just just an important kind of logistic piece uh, if you're going to implement dbt skills in your program okay so why add dbt skills to my toolbox as a therapist and encourage our clients to add them to their toolbox. Um, the DBT skills teach ongoing balance between acceptance and change. Um, I think in the last one of the other podcasts, I talked about the serenity prayer. You know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. That's kind of dialectics if you got the heart of it, that poem, that, that sentiment. It's acceptance, change, <clears throat> and synthesis of that to be, it be in wise mind. Uh, the skills teach tolerance of something that can't be changed in the moment, and it teaches problem solving on the other end. And as therapists model and demonstrate skills, we become partners with our clients in practicing those skills. So if I go to the, um, the general handout one in the DBT skills training handout worksheets, second edition by Marshall Linehan, uh, what I'm gonna find is a general goal of why <clears throat> we teach skills. And this is what she says in there, the quote, to learn how to change our own behaviors, emotions, and thoughts that are linked to problems in living and are causing misery and distress. And then she goes on to list specific goals of skills training for behaviors to decrease. And here's what she lists. Mindlessness, emptiness, being out of touch with self and others, judgmentalness, interpersonal conflict and stress, loneliness, absence of flexibility, difficulties with change, up and down and extreme emotions, extreme emotions, mood-dependent behavior, difficulties in regulating emotion, impulsive behaviors, acting without thinking, difficulties accepting reality as it is, and willfulness and addictions. Um, she also mentions behaviors to increase as goals, and those are the addition to your repertoire of the skills, which are mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, emotion regulation, and distress tolerance. Now, as part of our assessment, uh, when we 
bring a new client into DBT. We make a commitment for four weeks for a comprehensive program. And during that time, we do assessment to look at what their problem behaviors are, what their life worth living goals are, um, what they're willing to commit to work on as target behaviors to get some of the problems out of the way. And we're also looking at what skills deficits they may specifically have that will will teach both in skills class and then reinforce and uh, practice in individual therapy. So here's some things that we have we identify. Um, and these are things, by the way, that help both our clients and ourselves to be more aware, non-judgmentally in the moment and focus on what is needed, to tolerate distress uh, both internally and environmentally, to be able to tolerate experiencing uncomfortable emotions, to reduce emotional outbursts and impulsive behaviors that are not in support of our long-term goals, to accept what is rather than what should be, that idea of stop fighting reality, and to increase compassion for self and others, identify um, identify and increase control of how we intentionally direct our attention. So to be able to take control of our mind instead of our kind of puppy mind and emotions taking over and creating our behaviors for us. Uh, identify the difference between a fact and one's interpretation of a fact. That's kind of a, a big thing because based on our interpretation of what's happening in our world or inside of us, it can change the emotion, it can change the behavior, and if it's not attached to the fact, um, it can create unintended consequences. So we want to increase dialectical thinking, move from either or thinking to both and and thinking, improve relationships. Uh, I, already, uh, I already talked about problem solving. So what is dialectics and DBT? The word dialectics stems from philosophy, and it kind of embodies the movement toward balance between two opposing ideas, a thesis and an antithesis, right, wrong, good, bad, up, down, acceptance and change, which is the primary dialectic in DBT. Um, so the skills teach us how to practice a dialectical worldview, to be able to see uh, others' points of view, looking through the eyes of others, to move away from that either or it has to be this or it has to be that, to kind of a a both-and way of seeing the world, that there can be some a kernel of truth in your perspective and a kernel of truth in mine, to look for wisdom on both sides of a conflict or an opposing perspective. So um, rigid thinking, black-white thinking, um, gets into that place where you're either right or you're wrong or I'm right or I'm wrong. And sometimes we'll hold on to that like, like a dog with a bone and not be willing to find a synthesis, and that creates distress and problems for many of us. DBT skills also teach validation, which is the primary DBT acceptance strategy. Um, uh, Kelly Kerner, again, in her book, uh, Doing DBT, uh, that she published in 2012, DBT defines validation as empathy plus the communication that the client's perspective is valid, is valid in some way. With empathy, you accurately understand the world from the client's perspective. With validation, you also actively communicate that the client's perspective makes sense. Now, when I say understand, it doesn't mean I necessarily understand, but if I got in my client's shoes and looked out through his or her eyes, I would be able to see that coming from their knowledge, their biology, their experience, that it would make sense that they're choosing the behavior or the interpretation they're choosing. Um, I kind of call validation three turns of a wheel. The first one is to, this is really the hardest part, is to listen silently on the inside and silently on the outside. I'm pretty good at listening silently on the outside, but who knows what's going on in my head? Well, you know, you don't know what I'm thinking about in my head. So I don't know if you've ever been in an argument. Perhaps you have. I have. And how long do you kind of listen when you're in an argument? 
a lot of times it's just long enough to come up with my next premise or my next rebuttal or whatever. Validation says, I'm going to listen to you all the way through. It's very Carl Rogers. It's very motivational interview where we're talking about reflex and simple uh, complex and, and reflex reflections. Really hearing and hearing. So first one is listen silently on the inside and silently on the outside. And then the second one is to get into your shoes and look up through your eyes so that I could perhaps understand your, I could understand your understanding, even if I don't understand. And then the third one is to be able to say it back to them in a way that they get that you got them. So what you're looking for is that kind of head nod, whether it's verbal or whether it's a, a literal head nod that indicates that they get that you get them. And that's such an important part of any treatment, to be perfectly honest. And it, it certainly is critical. It's the number one acceptance strategy in DBT, that we're able to validate another human being. There are seven levels of validation in DBT. Um, okay, so on the other side, so that's the acceptance side. On the other side, DBT teaches problem solving for change. So we have five different ways that we use in DBT for, for change. And one of them is learning skills. So it's like getting, getting the skills they didn't have inside of them and get them learned and overlearned so that they have them as a resource to use. There are four other problem solving um, or four other change strategies that we use that, again, bounce back and forth between, you know, uh, uh, we've got exposure to emotions that we want to escape from. We've got cognitive restructuring. We've got uh, contingency management. We've got um, a couple others. So that I'm drawing a blank right now. Let me back. Um, so anyway, the the whole idea is that we're we're looking at a validation on one side and problem solving the other, and the skills help us learn how to do that. So let's look at the mindfulness module real quickly. Um, that's on the acceptance side, and John Cabot Zinn, who is an American mindfulness master. Um, who's done a lot of work in mindfulness and a lot of work on uh, decreasing uh, pain, decreasing depression using mindfulness. His definition is mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. And this non-judgmentally thing shows up over and over and over again. It's not applying an interpretation. It's checking the facts and then making decisions based on what's there. So purpose of mindfulness, to focus on what works. How to be effective in the moment, intentionally, that keeps you on your path to your long-term goal as an effective in the moment as well. To learn to be in control of our minds rather than having our emotions, thoughts, judgments, and physical urges control us. To participate fully in each moment with awareness, non-judgmentally. That idea of, as for therapists, for us to be fully present is so much a part of what makes us good therapists. If we're, you know, kind of half there or half-hearted, I'll tell you, sometimes I do mindfulness exercises at, at the beginning of a individual therapy session, actually quite often. We, we do mindfulness exercises at, in team, for our DBT team at the beginning every time to get us all focused in the room. Every skills class, uh, every staff meeting we have, every training I do starts with a mindfulness exercise because the whole idea is to get present. And a lot of times, if I'm going from one client to another to another or coming from a meeting or there's been a crisis, I need mindfulness at the beginning of my next individual therapy session as well. So sometimes I'll say, you know what, let's just take a minute for both of us to kind of come into the room, you know, I've, I've been busy and I want to make sure I'm really present here for you. So let's take a, a minute and just pay attention to our breath or pay attention to, I don't know, a, a sand timer or something that just allows us to come in the room and then do the observe and describe and then move into the session. It actually saves time rather than loses time. So let's see, to participate fully in the moment, to increase acceptance and compassion of self and others. This is so important for self as well, to be mindful that, you know, I'm doing the best I can too in the moment I'm in. And another and final purpose is to reduce suffering. You know, pain 
in the world is something that we can't control for. Pain is going to happen to us. But suffering is when we can't just be in the moment and be with it. It, it makes the pain into suffering. It's like if I have a pain in my back and my brain goes, oh, my God, this is going to be there forever, it becomes intolerable. But if I say, you know, I've got a pain in my back right now and it is hurting and I'm aware of it, then I can stay with it and take it moment by moment by moment. So mindfulness is becoming more aware, becoming more intentional, participating in your experiences in each moment, and becoming more curious and less judgmental about what is. I know in my body when I'm being curious and going, huh, what's that? Or I'm being judgmental and going, huh, what's that? So my body tightens when I'm being judgmental and it opens when I'm being curious. So notice your own body, what happens when you're being judgmental of somebody driving in front of you, cuts you off, or if you're curious about what's going on with that person. So we're just making stuff up because we don't know what's anybody else's head anyway, but uh, curiosity creates less problems for us. So what are the skills in mindfulness? We've got emotion mind, wise mind, and reasonable mind. And obviously emotion mind is that place that holds all of our emotions. It's our passion. You know, you and I are both passionate about the work we do. Maybe our hobbies, our art, whatever. That's an emotion mind. Uh, reasonable mind is that cool logic-based mind where we make decisions and do some problem solving and build bridges and um, what else do we do in reasonable mind? Read maps, uh, those kinds of things. And wise mind is the synthesis of those two minds. Now, they're not good or bad. It's just the synthesis. And we make our best decisions from wise mind. Now, the recipe for wise mind are the other six uh, mindfulness skills, which are observe, describe, participate, which are the what skills, and then the how skills, which are non-judgmentally, one mindfully or one thing at a time and effectively. So that's the mindfulness uh, module. The next one, we're going to jump to the change side just so we can keep jumping back and forth. And we're going to look at the emotion regulation module. Now, in that module, we've got four goals. We want to understand and name our own emotions. Uh, a lot of the folks I deal with do not have an understanding of the different emotions. When I worked with aggressive adolescent boys in residential care for that 15 years, and when we, we got DBT into that program, it was so amazingly helpful because a lot of my the boys that we worked with only had a couple of emotions they identified, and most of them were in that kind of anger family. They had no way to effectively experience shame or embarrassment or sadness. They didn't even have names for it sometimes. So it's like the emotions learning to understand them, to be able to decrease the frequency of unwanted emotions by being able to regulate our, our judgments, our interpretations, and other ways, to reduce our vulnerability to emotion mind. And a lot of that is about self-care. You know, in the 12-step programs, they talk about HALT. Vulnerabilities are hungry, angry, lonely, tired. You know, and, and it's like to be able to reduce those things so that we're less... Um, uh, vulnerable to emotion mind. And the fourth one is decrease emotional, to decrease emotional suffering. So we also talk in there about what emotions are, are for. Emotions motivate and activate us. Emotions communicate to others. And emotions communicate to ourselves. So it's not like we're trying to get rid of them. We're just trying to upregulate them or downregulate them. So that's what, the, um, that's what the emotion regulation skills are for. Uh, we also talk about subjective units of discomfort or distress. We teach clients how to know if, you know, I'd go do zero to five just because I don't like math. So five is a tsunami of emotion and zero is kind of meh. Some people go zero to 10, some people go zero to 100. That's, that's a choice. But it's like having them learn what emotion they're experiencing and how big it is. Uh, we all know that if we get very high up into our uh, subjective units of distress with a with an emotion that we jump into our reptilian brain and go to fight, flight, and freeze, and not very good at staying out of staying in our prefrontal cortex. We can problem solve. So there's some big skills: checking the facts, problem solving, opposite action is an amazing skill. Um, so those are the ABC skills, which are build positive emotions, 
uh, take care of our physical health. Cope ahead is like imaginal rehearsal and building mastery. We also look at decreasing emotional suffering using the uh, tip skills. There's a whole new uh, section of skills in using temperature to uh, simulate the dive reflex. It'll re reset the central nervous system. The using um, uh, temperature, putting ice on our face, using intense exercise, relaxation, those kinds of things. And that's all taught in, the, in that, that module. Then we move on to the distress tolerance model, which jumps us right back to the acceptance skills. Now, the distress tolerance skills in DBT are designed to help us tolerate painful or seemingly intolerable emotions, crises that we can't change or make better right away. And you just don't want to make it worse. So when I was teaching this to my, my guys in residential care, it's like, dude, this is just to help you not make, take a bad situation, make it worse. That's all it's for. And it's short term. It's not meant to solve the problem. There is no problem solving in distress tolerance skills. It's, it's using one of two approaches, crisis survival skills. And there are like a slew of crisis survival skills that you can use that are just for short term to just not make it worse. An example may be, um, I'm having a, well, my boss is having a conversation with me where he, he or she is not being very effective in managing his or her emotions and maybe is yelling at me. But the power differential is so great, it is not to my best interest to talk back, to do anything. So a distress distract skill I would use is just count the blinks of their eyes or to float my tongue in my mouth with my mouth closed so that I am not saying or doing anything. And just don't, it is not a time that's going to be good for problem solving. So it's just not make it worse. And there's some wonderful skills that we can use on that. Uh, one of the newer ones that's in the, this second edition is called the stop skill, which kind of goes all over the place between the different skills. The S in stop stands for just stop what you're doing. Don't react. Don't say one more word. Don't take one more step forward. T is take a step back, take a breath, take a break, take a pause. The O stands for observe. Notice what's going inside of you, how high your emotion is, what interpretations you're placing on this, and what you see on the outside. How is the person responding to you right now? What's going on in your immediate environment? So really going back to observing, which is a mindfulness skill, and then proceed mindfully, which means I'm going to act effectively. I'm going to act with awareness. So everything takes us back to mindfulness. But I have to be aware enough that my, my emotions and, and my desire for my urges to be impulsive are getting high enough that I need to just stop. Uh, we also have one called pros and cons, which is actually looking at the positive and negative outcomes of tolerating distress or not tolerating distress, of using a skill, not using a skill. We've got the tip skills, which are temperature, intense physical exercise, paced breathing. We'll go into these in more detail in other podcasts as we break down the skills. And then there's distract skills. There are uh, activities. It's an acronym. We do lots and lots of acronyms and, you know, kind of reminders tools to remember. It's, it's called Distract with Wise Mind Accepts. And the accepts, as you go down, there's activities, contributing, comparison, emotions, pushing away, thoughts and sensations. And there are like hundreds of these you can put together. So if my only job is to not make this worse, then I can work with my client or myself to be able to put some of these things together. Another distract skill is self-soothe with the five senses. A lot of the folks I've worked with, both with adolescents and adults, really don't have um, f um, adaptive self-soothe skills. Um, their soothing skills often are addictions, avoidance, um, getting things to stop, self-harming behaviors. That's how I decrease my distress. So a lot of times there's an absence of knowing how. And that's why in DBT, before we assume motivation or lack of motivation or I don't care or this client is resistant, we don't even use those words, we just treat the problems around that, is we're saying, does this person have the skills to do this? And that's why 
all the separate teaching of DBT skills that goes hand in hand with individual therapy. A lot of times clients come in with what I lovingly call crisis du jour. And it's like, by the time that gets talked about, there's no time to offer strategies and tools. So in DBT, we do individual therapy a little differently by having them bring in a diary card that has their target behaviors that they're working on, and we kind of talk about it that way. Um, so self-soothe, vision, hearing, smell, taste, and touch. You know, having them come up with ways, maybe a special lotion or uh, music that's soothing or touch that's soothing, pet your cat, you know, get a hug. And improve the moment with, um, that's I-M-P-R-O-V-E. So we've got I is imagery, M is meaning, P is prayer, R is relaxation, O is one thing at a time, V is a vacation, and E is encouragement. Now, obviously, I'm just giving you the top level of this. Um, the second part of the distress tolerance skills are probably maybe some of the hardest skills, and those are the reality acceptance skills. That's the ability to just accept let go of fighting reality so that you can cope with the pain that you live with. There are just some really hard things that happen in life that we can't change. Um, and, and that's the skill of letting go, letting go, letting go, so that you're not just fighting reality. Um, this year, I, I'll turn 67, and I can be as miserable about that as I want, but I really can't do anything about it until I turn 68. So it's kind of like I can have all kinds of interpretations about being old, about being younger than an 80-year-old, all those kinds of things. But it's there's something I have to accept about being this age, and it's I'm this age, whatever that, whatever that brings. So we've got some myths about acceptance we talk about. And then there's some actual acceptance skills um, that we use that, um, that, that help us get there. I don't know that any of us stay in really radical acceptance 100% of the time. Um, I think we turn our mind toward that over and over because there's some things we are we just don't want to accept. And so we have to kind of drop our arms and use willing hands and, and just step into it and say, yeah, I so wish it was different. And this is what is. Uh, and the last module that we're going to talk about today are called the interpersonal effectiveness skills. And this, again, is on the change side. So the goals of interpersonal effectiveness are to improve our, our ability to accomplish three objectives. Get what we want or tell a person no in a situation. To gain, maintain, or repair a relationship that we're in that, that matters to us. And gain, maintain, or repair our self-respect. Now, in a lot of therapies, they say you can't change another person. I really can't. But I can certainly influence their approach to me by the way I interact with them from an interpersonal manner. So if I can learn how to communicate with you in a way that is validating, in a way that is kind, in a way that is listening, in a way that have, is able for you to see that I see you, I'm going to influence your behavior. And that's what I tell the clients. It's like, you know, you can't make anybody change, but you sure can influence them because we transact. And as we treat each other differently, we're able to sometimes help people modify their behavior toward us as well. So the reasons to use interpersonal effectiveness are to attend to relationships, to balance priorities and demands, because we have both, to balance wants and shoulds, and to build mastery and self-respect. So we're looking for factors that reduce or interfere with uh, using those skills. So I can teach you the skills, but then what gets in the way? Well, I don't know how. That's one. Worry thoughts get in our way a lot. Big emotions get in our way. Indecision. I'm not even sure what I want in this situation. And sometimes the environment is just too big and it gets in our way of being effective. So when we're looking at you know, things that we want to ask for. We're looking at different factors to consider. And all these pieces get taught in this module. Um, if I'm going to decide whether to ask for something or to say no to something, I'm going to check out 10 different factors to consider, which you can, you can find in the, 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 the handout worksheet manual. And, but I'll just run through them. Does this person have the capability to give me what I want? Uh, let's look at the priorities. 
Let's look at my self-respect. Does this person, is this a right I have? Does this person have the authority to give me what I want? Does, does our relationship um, fit? You know, I probably wouldn't, you know, go to one of my clients and say, can I borrow $1,000? The relationship doesn't match that. Um, factors, what's important in the short term versus what's important in the long run? And is there reciprocity in the relationship? Have I given as much as I get? Have I taken as much as I give? Looking at that. Uh, have I done my homework? You know, I, I used to supervise a lot of people in a nonprofit organization, and they almost always got a, a vacation easier with me if they came in and gave me all the things that were taken care of, that they had finished these assignments, they had the shifts were covered, you know, they had people to take care of things while they were at. You know, they'd checked with HR to see if they had vacation time coming. Those kinds of things. It's like made my work so much easier. And it was way more likely that I was going to say yes than no. Or at least not put them off. And then timing is everything. I had four children. I had uh, four middle schoolers and teenagers at the same time. And I'd get out of the car and head toward, down the driveway to the side door. And I'd hear this set of eight feet coming toward me. I need cookies for tomorrow. I forgot to do this. And then I was like, oh, dear, let me take a deep breath. So I use the same thing that my mama did. And you're welcome to steal this if you want. I would say, darlings, my name is not mama right now. It's Minnie Agnes. And Minnie Agnes is not available. So I go take a few minutes, change my clothes, get a cup of coffee, sit down in my chair and say, come on, babies, let's talk. Tell me what you need. Tell me what you want. And then I could embrace them. And they learn to trust that that I, I was available in a few minutes, but right now they weren't going to get their best answers from me. I needed a chance to, to reconnect with myself and then to connect with them. So those are factors to consider. Just a good example. So there's a whole set of skills. There's some what and how skills to use to do this interpersonal effectiveness thing. And we remember what I'm calling the dear man give fast skills, which will make absolutely no sense to you right now. But the dear part is just what you do. When you're going to ask for something or, or protest not doing something you don't want to do, you're going to just do the do of describe the situation, express how you feel about it, actually assert, do the ask, and then reinforce the other person for being willing to even at least consider it. Then you're going to do the house skills. The man, dear man, is be mindful, appear confident, be willing to negotiate if possible, and then you've got the skills for how to maintain and really focus on the relationship, and that's called the give skills. Be gentle. Act interested in the other person's point of view. Validate. There's that validate word that shows up again. And be gentle. Have an easy manner. All these things require mindfulness skills. So it always goes back to that core skill of mindfulness, which is why we teach it between every module. And then the last, uh, your dear man give, and the last one is fast, is be fair. Don't apologize for your very existence. We call it apologize no more. Don't, don't grovel. Stick to your values and be truthful. So those are the four primary skills modules. They are available to learn and to teach. Um, in our program, we have a training program for our own therapists, our own trainees, and we work with a nonprofit to train up master's level students as well so that they have a chance to both lead and co-lead these groups. So I encourage you to take a look at the DBT skills. I think in, in the next few podcasts or down the road, I will be breaking these down and spending the entire time looking at each module so we can go in a little more depth and have a few more examples. So in our program at uh, Choices Counseling and Skills Center, in Sierra Madre, California, which is right next door to Pasadena. We uh, offer both the multifamily and the skills groups. We also do skills groups for individual families. If for some reason there's a reason for the, the client who comes into DBT, their siblings, and maybe their caregivers to come into a single family group together. And that's worked out really well. So we do both family skills and multifamily groups. So, um, I thank you for your kind attention today and your willingness to learn about this stuff. Not everybody gets as excited about this stuff as I do, but I have seen such amazing success in people's lives. I really don't think I've done a treatment approach that has had the success and dividends that this has had for others and 
for me to feel um, that I'm, I'm doing important work in my career. So I wish you kindness. I wish you peace. I wish you a restful rest of your day. Bye-bye. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.